The song that we just watched is really a summary of the whole message. You know, you don't really know why you're alive until you know what you're willing to die for. You really stop and think about that. Are you willing to die for other things than besides Jesus Christ? So today we're going to learn what is a disciple of Christ. As a late teacher, I, I rely on other teachers in their teachings. And this message was taught at the Shepherds Conference two years ago by Steve Lawson. And uh, up there on the screen is a cover of a, of a book that uh, he wrote uh, on this text, a passage that we're going to study today. And he gave this message to 6,000 college students. And uh, what a penetrating message to hear at that young age. I never got a chance to hear this type of message at this age, so uh, at that age. So uh, I hope everyone is blessed by the message. It's certainly blessed me uh, over the last year and a half or so, and uh, I wanted to share it with you. And Ray Comfort, you know, uh, he tells a story of Russian soldiers coming in with their, their guns ablazing into a church. They blast through the back of the church doors, and they command every non-Christian to get out of the church. And 90% of the church evacuates. They close the doors, lay down their guns, pull out their Bible, and says, now that we have true believers here, let's study the Word of God. So what we're going to learn today is what is a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of concern today by a lot of pastors that there's a lot of people sitting in the church pews today that think they are saved, but they're not. You attend church, you're morally good, you know about Jesus, you have some degree of knowledge about him, you believe you are saved, you have a false sense of security, of salvation, but because you have not committed your life to Jesus Christ, you may not be saved. Churches are full of people like this. This message is intended to point people that are like that in the right direction. And if you are already saved, it'll hopefully deepen your walk and your commitment to Jesus Christ. In Luke 14, 27, part of the passage that we're going to study today, come after me. This is a compassionate plea. It's an evangelistic message showing the compassion of our Lord. A lot of Bibles title this passage, the cost of discipleship. But you could also label it the compassion of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, come after me. This is the greatest adventure following Jesus Christ. It's pursuit of life's, the life's purpose that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. It meets life's greatest need. The forgiveness of sins. It's a spiritual journey following Jesus Christ. It's a journey beyond comparison. Come after me is a call for a spiritual journey. He invites you to follow him in your hearts. He calls you to take steps of faith and follow his direction for your life. Today, we're going to look at a crowd that was following Jesus. He had become popular, probably the most popular man in Israel. People throughout Israel knew who he was. He had healed the sick. Healed the blind, the deaf, fed the 5,000, fed the 4,000, raised people from the dead, walked on the water, calmed the sea, and calmed the wind. They were curious. They were uncommitted, and they were unconverted. 
So let's turn and look at the passage, Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able to win with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while there are Other is yet a great way off. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So thereafter, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, Jesus Christ isn't sugarcoating the message here. He's coming to the end of his earthly life. He is on the road to Jerusalem. And he's just months away from his crucifixion. These are very hard words. But they need to be pointed. Time was short. He had compassion. He wanted to get the message across to him. Starting this journey cost you nothing. No good works. No monetary payment, no moral standard, no spiritual ladder to go up, no rituals or ceremonies to perform. He invites you on a journey that starts with a spiritual relationship with him by faith. And as we know from Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. You cannot earn it. It's a gift. It's a gift by faith alone from Jesus Christ. So what does this journey provide when you commit your life to him? You will receive the immediate forgiveness of your sins because of the death that Christ paid for your sins on the cross. The record is wiped clean in heaven. All charges are dropped, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, full acceptance with a holy God in heaven. Christ comes to live in you, never to leave you. Coming after Christ leads you into the will of God for your life, an abundant life. The fullness of God's blessing as outlined in the Beatitudes. Jesus gives you the Holy Spirit to give you the strength that gives you his peace and joy. He gives you his fellowship according to the riches of his glory, working towards our good. But the cost of the journey comes at a high price. It will cost you your old ways of life, forfeiting your past sins. It will cost you your old habits and maybe some of your friends. 
It will cost you following your own agenda. It will cost you your time and treasure to spread the gospel. It will cost you your time, uh, your suffering from persecution, and maybe even your life. In the end, you will have gained much more than you have lost. But this journey leads to the most glorious destination. It leads you to heaven itself, into the very throne room of God himself. If you are an unbeliever, this message is the most important message you will ever hear. If you are a believer, these words of Jesus Christ will challenge your faith. I hope it will deepen your resolve to follow Jesus Christ. Looking at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. You can hide in large crowds without making a commitment, as I said earlier. There are large crowds streaming from all the villages around the surrounding countryside. Notice it's plural, crowds. Many crowds are coming together. Jesus was popular, and there was excitement in the air to hear and see him and hear for themselves what he had to say. The word had gone out. Jesus was in the area. But Jesus, of course, knew it was a diverse crowd. There was the committed few. The 11 of the 12 disciples, for sure, they gave up everything to follow Jesus Christ. There's the curious majority about a popular figure, a miracle worker, that God was with him, spoke with authority, claimed to be the son of God. They had to check him out. By the way, nothing's changed. People are doing that today as well. The confused masses. Wasn't he divine? Wasn't he human like them? Why did he come? Was he just another prophet? People have those same questions today as well. The convicted seekers. They want to learn more about, what Christ, about Christ and salvation. They, they've come under the conviction of sin. And they're discovering their need for grace. It's the same today. And then there's the counterfeit followers. They look real. They blend in. They know all the right words. But they mask their own spiritual void. They profess to know Christ. But they do not have a personal relationship with him. Judas was one of them. And there's many of those again today as well. So where do you see yourself? Are you committed? Just curious? Confused? Convicted? Or a counterfeit? You need the right diagnosis. What is required to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus Christ is a straight talker. He's telling it like it is. It's not hard to understand, but it's pretty hard to swallow. This easily ranks as one of the most shocking words to come from the lips of Jesus. But what does this mean? The seemingly harsh words 
Aren't they contradictory? The fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. Moses said, love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus taught, love our enemies. And Paul commanded the husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. So how do we interpret this? How do we harmonize this with the rest of Scripture? The riddle can be solved, but first, let's look at the opening. The Savior calls. Verse 26, if anyone, if anyone, anyone comes to me. This is an open invitation. This is the compassion of the Lord reaching out to everyone, everyone who comes to me. The call went out to the mixed crowd, the curious the confused, the convicted, and the counterfeits. The call goes to everyone. He is calling you. It's an open invitation. The call necessitates, though, a decisive step of faith. You must commit your entire life to him. To come to Christ is the same as placing your whole trust in him. It means to transfer your reliance on your own efforts to Christ's righteousness in order to have a right standing before God. Here we see that coming to Jesus is the same as believing in him. The one who issues the call sets the terms for following him. No one comes to Jesus on his or her own conditions. No one cuts their own deal with Christ. Their terms may be accepted or refused, but never altered. The requirement is fixed by Jesus Christ himself. The word hate just leaps right off the page. It's a harsh word. We teach our grandsons not to use the word. It's such a strong, harsh word. But these words are too strong to be ignored. What does Jesus mean? Is he saying we must hate those most enduring relationships that we have? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even your own life, cannot be my disciple? What this is is an intentional exaggeration. In the English language, we call it hyperbole. It's an exaggerated statement intended to make a critical point, setting love and hate in contrast to each other at polar opposites. What he means is that we must love him more than our family members if we are to be true disciples of Christ. And Scripture interprets Scripture. And Matthew 10.37 is the scripture that unlocks this passage and what it really means. And Jesus said in Matthew 10.37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves sons or daughters more than me is not worthy of me. There can be no rival affections that compete with our love for Christ. This is just another way of saying the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, Christ is first in your life. Jesus will not settle for second place in our lives. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else in life is peripheral. Jesus is primary. Loving Jesus begins with our mind, knowing who he is, what his character is, 
what he has done, what he is doing, what will he do? You need to learn what he said and what he taught. Your minds must be filled with the true knowledge of him. And that true knowledge comes from his word. After reading that and knowing him, your heart must be ignited with strong affections for him. Beholding his perfect holiness, observing his sacrificial love, should melt your hearts towards him. Looking at his sinless life and his saving work should move you. You cannot be cold. You cannot be clinical. You cannot be stoic. There has to be a fervent first love for Jesus Christ. Finally, any genuine love for Christ will also drive your will. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This means your love for Christ should produce for you obedience to him. Whenever genuine life, love for Christ is the root, grace-fueled obedience will be the fruit. I'll say that again. Whenever genuine love for Christ is the root, grace-fueled obedience will be the fruit. Marriage is a faint example of this. When I met Carolyn, I had to get to know her first. I get, I, what was she like? What did she like? What did she like to do? And after I got to know her, I developed strong affections for her. And then after I developed strong affections for her, on the day we got married, I professed my faith and my will to follow her and be with her the rest of my life. That's the way it is with Jesus Christ. With our minds, we get to know him. With our affections, we fall in love with him. And if we fall in love with him, we will follow his will. Another provocative statement. Verse 26. Each person must hate even his own life. You must love Christ far more than you ever care for your own life. As followers of Christ, you must die to self-love. That's what the video was teaching us. You cannot remain self-focused, self-motivated, and self-defiant. You must love him more than you love yourself. And I itemize these in the handout. What does self look like? Self-love look like? Self-centeredness, self-preoccupation, self-pampering, self-pity, self-flattery, self-indulgence, self-promotion, selfies, self-pleasures, self-exaltation, self-esteem, self-absorbed, self-consumed, self-focused, self-fixed. Self must die if we to live for Christ. It's the only way. It's a non-negotiable term. He calls for the total commitment of each person's life. Otherwise, he asserted that you cannot be his disciple. Jesus stated this in the negative. So as his words will have a sharp edge to them, he has short time to get the message through to them. He's trying to grab their attention. He has compassion for them. Have you answered the invitation by Jesus Christ? Have you come all the way to Christ by faith? If not, what's holding you back? Verse 
Verse 26, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There are no fine print in Jesus Christ's terms of conditions. He never marks down the price. He never tries to manipulate anyone by lowering the terms. He never dumbs down the message. He never tries to induce you with shallow decisions. He never lowers the requirements to get more followers. Unfortunately, today, we have many religious charlatans. They water down the gospel. They exaggerate what you will gain, but never what you must sacrifice. They never hear about self-denial, much less about self-suffering. This is full disclosure from our Lord. Jesus is frank, forthright, truth-teller. A genuine commitment can only be made if you know the cost. And Jesus is telling us up front what the cost is. Jesus knew the cost. It was a cross for him. And it's a cross for you and me. The apostles knew the cost. The reformers that we studied during the Reformation time knew the cost. Missionaries know the cost. Christians that live in 53 Muslim countries where it's illegal to be a Christian, they know the cost. So what is a disciple? Three times it is the last word in verse 26, 27, and 33. This is the key to the whole passage. He demands fully surrendered followers who are all in. He commands disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He stresses he is seeking disciples, not empty decision makers or passive spectators. The Christian was not co- the term Christian was not coined until later in Acts eleven twenty six, and then it was coined by unbelievers as a term of derision. Those followers of Christ, those Christians, a genuine disciple is a true believer in Jesus Christ who is soundly converted to Him. The Greek word disciple means learner or pupil, one who sits under the instruction of a master teacher. In ancient times, a rabbi, which means teacher, was often an itinerant instructor, just like Jesus Christ was. Students embraced his teaching and emulated his life. Jesus established a teacher-student relationship with his followers. So a disciple is a learner and a follower. You learn what Jesus teaches, you live out what he instructs, you obey his teachings, and if there is no obedience, you are not a true disciple. Jesus claimed his teaching was authoritative. It came directly from God. John seven sixteen. my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Obedience to Christ's teaching was obedience to God. John 8, 26. He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Continuing in verse 28. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as my father taught me. Following what Jesus taught was actually obeying what God taught. John eight thirty eight. I speak of what I have seen with my father. What Jesus taught 
he received directly from God the Father. John twelve forty nine. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me as himself, given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is God speaking when Jesus is speaking. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. John fourteen ten. Jesus maintained that every truth he spoke was from the Father. In John fourteen twenty four, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. A disciple clearly discerns the authoritative truth of God in the words of Christ. A true disciple recognizes that Jesus spoke unparalleled wisdom of God. Whatever Jesus stated must be received as the final word from God. A disciple recognizes Jesus is the highest authority, final arbitrator on every matter. Whatever Jesus said is the way things truly are. A disciple recognizes the lordship of Christ and aligns his life under his teachings. And the crowds recognize this. Matthew 7, 28. The crowds were astonished at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew 13, 54. He taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Just on Palm Sunday, Mark eleven eighteen, all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the guards went out, sent by the Pharisees to arrest Jesus, and they came back without him, they said, why didn't you bring him back? And they said, no one has ever spoken like him. They were fearful. They knew he was speaking with authority. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. A genuine disciple is amazed at the teaching of Jesus Christ and chooses to follow him by living the reality of what he requires. Jesus made it clear that to be a true disciple, you have to be obedient. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So who will enter the kingdom of heaven? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest my love to him. John fourteen twenty one. I want to read that one again. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is, it is who loves me. And he who loves me 
will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What a great promise from Jesus Christ. A disciple of Christ is one who keeps his word out of love for the Savior. This is how you must live your life. In order to be a true disciple of Christ, you must make the decision to step out of the crowd and wholeheartedly follow him. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wow. More shocking words from our Lord. Even scandalous. The Roman cross was considered an obscenity in the first century. Capital punishment was reserved for the worst criminals against Rome. It was the most dreaded form of public execution. However, Roman citizens could not be crucified. And that's why the apostle Paul was beheaded, because he was a Roman citizen. But Peter and Andrew were not Roman citizens, and they were crucified. But here Jesus is telling us to carry our own cross. Again, Jesus is using scandalous words to shock us, to consider what he is saying, how important this message is to us. Again, the word, whoever comes to me, whoever, it's an open arm invitation. It parallels the anyone in verse 25. No matter who you are or whatever you have done, you are invited by Jesus to respond to this appeal. Jesus issued this invitation many times before. Enter by the narrow gate. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Like that sinner in the sinner's prayer that Bob read in the scripture this morning. He couldn't even look to heaven. He knew he was a convicted sinner and he needed the grace of God. If you come to him, he will not cast you out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus invites you to come and extend his undeserved grace. What are the terms of acceptance? Whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. This is a double negative. There's not in there twice. Not bear, cannot be my disciple. This is making a pointed statement. It's emphatic. In the first century, no one misunderstood what Jesus meant about bearing a cross. But what did he mean? When found guilty in Rome of a capital punishment, you were sentenced to death by crucifixion. The criminal would be forced to carry his crossbar through the streets. This was known as the death march and was public display of his guilt. It was intended to bring public shame. Carrying one's cross considered an agreement with the judge's death sentence. It was forced admission of guilt. Agreement with the verdict of the higher court. As a criminal carried his crossbeam, people would lie in the streets. This was meant to be a public spectacle. It was meant to be an example to anyone who thinks about betraying Rome. It signified that this offender was condemned by Rome and worthy of death. This individual was considered to be a dead man walking. It would be upon this very crossbeam that the criminal would be nailed in the act of crucifixion and lifted up to die. 
Jesus is stating to follow him, you must do the same, spiritually speaking. You must see yourself as standing before the judgment of God, having been found guilty of breaking his moral law. Understanding this means agreeing with the divine verdict of the heavenly court. You must see yourself in need of God on a daily basis. We need his grace every day. You must turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. As a believer, you must carry your cross daily. This means that as the one who would follow Christ, you must not rely on yourself any longer, but solely on him. You must live daily looking for Jesus for, to Jesus for strength and direction. Now is the time. The entire Bible speaks of the urgency of choosing to take up the cross and carrying it now. 2 Corinthians 6 two. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And as Charles Spurgeon says, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. My Bible says, behold, now is the time of salvation. The word now indicates the present urgency of coming to faith in Christ. Refusing has serious consequences of not responding. It's about where you will spend eternity. The Bible says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Proverbs 27.1. Every day, about 150,000 people die in this world, and most did not expect it. Since this service started, over 6,000 people have died, and they did not expect it. Do not presume on God's grace that you will be here tomorrow. These are strong words by Christ to make strong disciples who have strong faith. Thirteen times in the four Gospels, the words, follow me. Here, then, he invites us to come after him. He is saying, follow me. This is an invitation for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It requires a commitment. But what kind? I've outlined 12 of them in your bulletin. It's a priority commitment. Answering this call is the number one priority you have in your life. A personal commitment. Only you can make this commitment. No one else can make it for you. Enter by the narrow gate. One at a time can enter. You cannot enter with the group. And you cannot enter with any of your possessions. You enter one at a time. You must own the relationship with Christ for yourself. You must make a repentant commitment. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first words Jesus spoke in the New Testament. Matthew four seventeen. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1, 15. Repentance is necessary. He is the holy, sinless Son of God. You must set your face toward the pursuit of personal holiness. You cannot follow Christ without abandoning your, abandoning your former life of sin. Number four, a trusting commitment. You must follow Jesus believingly. You don't know where you are going. You don't know who else is coming. You don't know what else is required. 
You need to trust in him alone for forgiveness and righteousness. A wholehearted commitment. You cannot hold back. You must be all in. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew six twenty four. You cannot follow him and remain with the crowd. Number six, an unconditional commitment. You must follow Christ no matter what. You cannot set any conditions. Jesus gives you f- no further explanations when he says, follow me. There is no sacrifice too great to make for him who gave us his very life. Number seven, an obedient commitment. The words follow me are in the imperative mood. So that's given as a command. Follow me. Follow me. It is a command that must be obeyed or else it is disobedience. Obedience does not save you, but is evidence that true salvation has taken place. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Note in that verse, John 3.36, believing and obeying are synonymous. I'll say it again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching of which you were committed. The point is, everyone lives in obedience to his or her master. Either a person lives under the governing power of sin or of Jesus. And there's no in between. If you're not under the governing power of Jesus, you are under the governing power of sin. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews 5, 9. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2, 3. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ. 1 John three twenty three. Number eight, must make an open commitment. You must follow him openly, not in secret, but in front of the world. For whoever is ashamed of me and, for my, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed, and when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. That's Mark eight thirty eight. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. I don't want the Lord to be ashamed of me. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. By putting this in the negative, Paul was making a powerful statement of his desire to make an open testimony for the gospel. But, as Christians, we are taught the proper way to do this. Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Colossians 4, 6. We cannot walk with him and be silent concerning to whom our allegiance belongs. Number nine, a continual commitment. Christ stated, coming after me in the present tense. This means that we must follow Jesus constantly, every moment of every day. Take up your cross daily and follow me, Luke 9, 23. This decision will lead to an everyday, all-day, habitual lifestyle. It must be an exclusive commitment. You must come after him only. He could not be one more voice amid the many teachers competing for your attention. You must make the commitment to follow Jesus and no one else. A permanent commitment. Making this decision meant that there was no turning back to your former ways. He is not calling for a short-term commitment that you could eventually terminate. This is a lifelong commitment that will guide you every step of the rest of the way of your life. Luke 9.62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You cannot be a disciple of Christ and be constantly second-guessing yourself. You cannot move forward with a divided heart. And number 12, an immediate commitment. While you have the light, believe in the light. That you may have become sons of light. John twelve thirty six. There is a limited time for you to believe in Christ. You must respond while the light of the knowledge of the gospel is shining. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a straight talker and giving us the truth so we know what it is to be a disciple of Christ and a follower. We pray that these words penetrate our hearts to, one, make a decision to be you for Christ if we are not already saved, and, two, if we are saved, that we deepen our walk with you and our commitment to you. Next week, we'll finish this passage. This week, we learn what it means to make a commitment to you. Next week, we will learn what the cost is of following you and also what the cost is of not following you. We pray that all these words press on our hearts and that we are all convicted. In Jesus' name, amen.